My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you. Um, if you need a Bible today, go ahead and raise your hand, and we'll have someone walking down the aisle to give you a Bible. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Malachi 3 and put your finger on uh, verse 6, because that's where we'll be going in a moment. Before we jump into the text today and continue in our series on Malachi, I want to ask you a question. My favorite game to play is Would You Rather, so we're going to play a little game of Would You Rather. I'm going to give you a three options. Go ahead and put them up on the screen here. Would you rather be stung by a scorpion, eat only mayonnaise for a week, or watch five straight hours of commercials? So turn to a few people around and see what you would do. All right, let's go ahead and bring it in. All right, let's do our survey. Who would rather be stung by a scorpion? Oh, some brave people. Who would only eat mayonnaise for a week? All right. And uh, who would watch five straight hours of commercials? All right, all right. Well, you, you might be wondering, what do these options have to do with anything we're talking about today? And they don't have much, but they do have one thing in common. I would rather do all of these things than preach a sermon about money and giving. <laughs> I have been a pastor for 10 years and have somehow avoided this. I guess part of the lead pastor role is you have to do these ones. Um, and, you know, I tried to pawn it off to Josh, but he had, like, his brother got married or something like that. <laughs> tried to see if they could move the wedding, but... Um, <laughs> The reason is, is because often in culture, uh, the well-publicized stories about the manipulative religious leaders, especially those on TV, who are trying to get people's money and trying to enrich themselves and buying planes and buying, um, you know, fancy suits and everything like that. And anytime you start talking about money as a pastor, you start to feel like that. And I don't want to feel like that. And furthermore, we're a church that is the opposite of that. Really, the only times we talk about money is when we are talking about how we can give outward and also when it comes up in the text. We, we don't emphasize money as much. We don't pass the plate. We've got giving boxes in the back. And we trust that God is going to provide for his people and is provide for this church, and he has. And as I was getting into this, my sense of dread began to wane a little bit when I started to read some of the the numbers and hear some of the stories about the generosity of this church. Let me tell you some stats that are going to blow you away. Last year, we as a community donated $2 million to the general fund, which is unbelievable. We could pay for a really bad NBA player with all that. <laughs> um, furthermore, 600,000 of that was focused on serving those outside the church through the Tempe 10, through all the different things that you have given. 
And then we, you as a church, you as part of God's uh, people have spent hundreds of thousands of hours walking with refugees, volunteering, uh, feasting with those who are homeless, caring for the elderly, elderly, embracing those with special needs, taking care of the children of this church. Th these are numbers of overwhelming generosity. And what's even more impressive is that as a pastor, I get to look in and see this crazy underground black market movement of generosity that we have in this church of where people are, are left and right anonymously helping each other out, not just in the church, but outside of the church. We have so many cars that people are giving away to other people in this church that it feels like an underground car dealership. <laughs> the amount of generosity that you have displayed over the last year, over the last decade, is overwhelming, and I want to commend you. And as we dive into this text today, if that has been who you are, I want you to receive that as an affirmation. And I know that people who have displayed that degree of generosity are people who would want to hear from this text and hear how we can deepen our generosity. So with that, let's go ahead and open up to Malachi chapter 3, starting with verse 6. Now before we jump into the text, let me paint the picture of what's happening here. Just like the other sections in Malachi, God and Israel are in an argument. They're in a debate. And God is seeking to restore the generosity of his people, which has waned. And he, he starts off by reminding them of his nature, his unchanging character, and reminding them of the stories of his provision for them. We also see that they have this accusation against, or God has this accusation against them. He says that they are robbing him robbing him by not giving financially, by not giving their tithes and their offerings. They had specifically stopped paying the 10% that was required to operate the temple, to care for widows, orphans, and the refugees in their land. God invited them in this passage. He, he says to test me. He invites them to restore their giving, and then he is going to restore their barren agricultural land. And so from this passage today, I'm going to draw out three implications about our generosity and how we are formed into a generous people. The first one is that our generosity is a response to God's resume. Second is that it's a respect for God's ownership. And third, that it's a conduit of God's mission. So let's start with our generosity is a response to God's resume. The very first verse, the very first passage that we look at here today in verse 6, we see it start with this phrase. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Israel, are not consumed. Rather than starting with a plea for giving, rather than a logistical explanation of how they could do a better job, he starts with his character and reminding them of who he has been to them. That he is an unchanging God. And the God that he has been for them throughout their history, he still is today. It says, I do, I do not change. Therefore, you, O Jacob, o, o children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Ultimately, this is saying that 
it, that generosity comes from having a glimpse of God's faithfulness, being reminded of his resume and his ability to provide like he had provided over and over again in the life of their community. He's comparing resumes. He's saying, all throughout the biblical story, I have cared for you even when you have turned away from me time and time again. And he's extending an invitation to his people saying, return to me and I will return to you. Just as I have forgiven you all those times before, I'm forgiving you again and restoring this relationship and will continue to provide for you. Now, what is God's resume? There's not a lot of content in that passage, but immediately when, when, this, when Malachi starts talking about the days of their fathers and talking about God's unchanging character, this isn't a statement, a dry statement of a theological truth, but it should jar to mind the long history that God has of providing for his people. They would probably be reminded of Abraham and Sarah, who in their old age, God came to them and said that he's going to bless them and give them children, and, that, and they laughed in God's face. But ultimately, the whole nation of Israel would come from their offspring. Even in their old age, God provided for them. They'd be reminded of the Exodus, how they suffered as slaves under the tyrant Pharaoh. This power who had been oppressing them and how God had miraculously rescued them and delivered them from Egypt. Even when they had turned away from him, he rescued them and provided freedom for them. They'd be reminded of their time in the desert when there wasn't food around and God miraculously made manna fall from the sky and provided for them and over and over again from military superpowers being taken down with trumpets to being returned back home from the exile that they had spent time in they, the biblical story in many ways is a, is a story is a resume of God's faithfulness and provision of his people for his people even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. And by reminding them of his unchanging character, he is establishing what true generosity looks, can, is, is founded upon. If we believe that God is the one who provides, us, provides for us, then we can hold things loosely and be his conduit of providing for others. Now you might say, how has God provided for me? I know what he did with Israel, but what's his resume of faithfulness to me? And what's interesting is I thought my daughter would probably have a good answer to that question. So I asked her, I said, how has God provided for you? And this is an exact quote. She says, 19 nights ago, I had a dream that my best friend and I were eaten by bears. But then I woke up and I realized that I have never been eaten by a bear in my whole life. Not once. <laughs> Jesus protects me from bears every day. And she has a point. <laughs> the same is true for you. If you are here in this room, you have never once been eaten by a bear in your whole life. At, at least not completely eaten by a bear in your whole life. And, and what we realize is that God's faithfulness and his protection and his kindness and his resume of provision for us is so thorough and complete that it can be easy to overlook. 
The average amount of calories that an average human being eats is 50 million calories in their lifetime. I've pretty much covered that by now. But every crumb that you take in, every calorie has, that sustains your life comes from the hand of God. You're, you're going to take, the average person takes 600 million breaths in their life, and every gust of oxygen has been breathed into our lungs by a generous God. The average person has 3 billion heartbeats, and with each contraction of the heart muscles, God declares, let there be life. We don't deserve one breath, one crumb, one heartbeat, and he lavishes on us so gener generously that it's overwhelming and almost becomes commonplace. When it comes to generosity, one of the big things that we have to realize is that we have to understand whose resume we are depending on, whose resume we are trusting in to provide for us here. If we trust in God's resume of faithful provision, then that frees us up to be generous. But Israel, in this passage, was likely looking at their own agricultural ability and not wanting to, to give, to tithe, because of the fact that they were thinking, this depends on me. And if it does depend on you, then they should not have given one grain of wheat in their giving. Because we all know as humans, we all feel vulnerable and a few steps away. And often our fear is what keeps us from being generous. But the, the way that we're free from that fear is to get a big picture of who God is and his unchanging, constantly providing character. I'll be honest with you. Um, I've already been honest about the scorpion thing. And um, I'm going to tell you my biggest fear because I think it may resonate. My biggest fear is that I will end up homeless. There was a, a few times when I was a kid where I got kind of close, and that made some impression on me that uh, kind of sticks with me. And in moments of stress and an unbelief, uh, I, I always feel like I'm a few steps away from being homeless. And, and I can even, in any instance, you could probably talk to me at any moment, and I could tell you a recent scenario that I've concocted in my mind where me and my family end up homeless. Even though we're doing well and we, you know, we live on the same street as Brent and Sari Quantz, who are part of this church, and they take care of everybody, so they're going to take care of us. Like, we'd be fine. We're doing better than I could have ever imagined as a kid. But I can tell you, like, okay, the bomb from Iran is going to come. It's going to hit the church. I don't have a job. Tax things are going to change. I don't have a job anymore. I hit my head, and I can't think, and I can't study the Bible. All of a sudden, I'm homeless. These scenarios are constantly, like, subtly floating below the surface of my mind. But if I look back at all of the crazy ways that God has provided, it's, it's overwhelmingly beautiful. Not just in my life, like the time I didn't have a job, I didn't have a house, and was on the brink. And somebody offered up a closet in his garage that I could stay in, which turned into be a palace for me at that time. And then some friends, college students, got together and helped me to, to buy a car. We named the car Gunther. And the car helped me actually get to work, and it provided, and it got me going again. 
And all of those things were generously coming from the hand of God through the hands of others. He has been faithful in my life. He's been faithful in your life. He's been faithful in the life of Israel. And when we look at his resume of provision, that frees us up to be generous. The second aspect of our generosity, the implication that we see here in this text, is that our generosity ultimately is a respect for God's ownership. One of the main ways we cultivate generosity is by understanding the profound truth that God owns everything. And when we understand this, we are freed up to generously give because we realize that we are only middlemen between God's generosity and him giving that to others. In this text, the main problem that the Israelites had is that they thought that all of their land, their money, their flocks of sheep belonged to them. And that God was giving an unfair burden to ask them for 10% in order to care for the widow, the orphans, the refugees, and the operations of the temple. But the truth is, is that God had provided everything for them. Every inch of land, every ounce of silver, every thread on the wool of the back of the sheep that they had was ultimately belonged to God and was a gift that was given into their stewardship. Malachi draws out the idea of God's ownership with this shocking statement here in verses 8 through 10. It starts with an accusation. It says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. So what's going on here is that is that uh, it starts with God saying, by you not tithing, you are actually robbing me. That's what he's saying to Israel. And then they respond kind of with the whiny voice. I'm, I'm guessing that it's the whiny voice of the teenager. It's not wanting to just be informed a little more. It's like, um, how have we robbed you? I'm, I'm unsure of this. No, it's like, how have we robbed you? What have I done? That sort of thing. And, and then God answers, and he says, it's in the withholding of the tithe and the contributions. Now, you might be asking, what is a tithe? What was going on here in the, in the temple and the tithe at that time? Well, basically, everyone was required to give 10% of all agricultural produce or the monetary value of that produce um, to bring it to the temple. It was a part of ceremonial worship, but it was also a part of funding the temple worship operations and then caring for the most vulnerable, widows, orphans, uh, and, and the sojourner, the refugee that was staying among them. Now, a lot of us, I imagine, if we're hearing this word tithing, uh, the question is coming to mind, are, are we supposed to tithe today? I know something has happened in the New Testament where Jesus has done something, and through his grace, he's fulfilled the law. So do things like this pertain to us? Well, I'll say, I'll say yes and no. Uh, no in the sense of that the compulsory, mandatory giving of 10% is no longer binding on us because Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law. And it is by a response to his grace that we give, not to just check something off the box. And so in a very real sense, what we see with the New Testament church is that there wasn't a continuity of the tithe as it was done in the Old Testament. However, 
there was a continuity in the heart behind it, that God's people actually ended up um, giving and probably giving way more than 10%, uh, but their giving was sacrificial, just like in the Old Testament. It was regular, um, and it was a joyful giving. The primary difference is that it was a response to God's grace and God's generosity, and then overflowed back with generosity toward God. And so if, if you're one of the, the people wondering, like, do I have to give 10%? What's the number of this and that? I would say don't even concern yourself with those questions. Get alone with God and, and pray and ask what he wants you to do. Another aspect that you see uh, that where there's continuity is that there's continuity in, the, in that the giving went towards caring for the body of Christ and the church, but also caring for those outside of the church. I've known three people in my life who refused to tithe for very good reasons. These three people set their standard of living at a certain amount, like basically middle class, and they said, anything we make beyond this, we're going we're gonna to give. These three people don't know each other, but I've heard of three people doing this. And then they just happened to be really good at business or happened to invent something and became millionaires. And they're like, oh, no, <laughs> what did I get myself into? And genuinely a sense of dread of saying, like, am I going to go back on this? But these three people might be some of the most joyful people you ever encounter. And they have had a role in, uh, like, for instance, one, one guy, Gary, in, in Chicago, has, has played a role in the sustaining, the establishing of churches, uh, the caring for the poor. And Chicago is flourishing in unbelievable ways as he has given millions for the flourishing of the city and only kept back like 60,000, 70,000 for himself a year. This is not a dreary thing. These people are filled uh, with joy, and they would not be held back by a 10% tithe. Now, going back to the passage and explaining a little more what's going on here, is when it talks about bringing the full tithe into the storehouse, we got to ask what's happening. So what they're bringing is, Mostly, they're not bringing money, but they're bringing their agricultural produce, the, the wheat, uh, the, the animals, those, those sorts of things. And um, it was either that they weren't giving at all or that they were bringing their worst. They were bringing, like, the rotting grain or the, or the crazy cross-eyed sheep that they, that they didn't want anything to do with. My, gr my grandma had a goat once, and this is what I picture them uh, bringing. This goat was out of its mind. First of all, it didn't know it was a goat. It hung out with the dogs and the other goats it would just stay away from. It would eat burning cigarettes as it, they were burning. And it would just arbitrarily, like, ram you in the knee. No reason. I think this was the kind of goat that they were bringing uh, into the offering. You can almost imagine it like this. Imagine if, um, imagine if you were in, uh, if you bought a house for somebody, and it's a house with a luscious, beautiful garden in it, and it has like an orchard in it, and the backyard is just filling with vegetation and plants, and you told the people, I'm going to give you this entire house, this entire garden. You take all of it, but all I want 
is 10% of, the, of what the produce, what comes from the garden in return. Now imagine if that person brought to you a box of citrus, or no, a box of grapefruit at the end of the season. Everybody knows grapefruit is garbage. It's the worst fruit. You, 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 there are people in here who will say they like grapefruit. The truth is, they actually like sugar, and grapefruit is a justification <laughs> to put it on there. Everybody at your office, in your neighborhood, has somebody that's trying to pawn off a box of grapefruit, and then they claim that they're giving you citrus, but it's just one lemon on top, and the rest is grapefruit, right? That's what it would be like. It would be like showing up and saying, here's your grapefruit. And the insult wouldn't be that you necessarily needed more fruit or more garden, but it would be the disregard that they had for you, that they had given you so, you had given so generously this whole property, this whole garden, this whole house, and they only thought you were worthy of grapefruit. <laughs> and in a very real sense, that's what's happening when they're bringing their incomplete, weak uh, offering into the temple. See, the main problem is that they didn't see that everything belonged to God. When it uses the word robbing God, it may seem harsh, but what it is is underneath that passage or underneath that phrase is the idea that God already owns everything and he has abundantly allowed his people to keep 90% in this passage. And he just says, give the 10% back so that I can distribute it to the, to the poor, to the widows, to those who are cleaned. And really the heart of this passage is saying, uh, when, when we refrain from giving, it's not just stealing from God. It's stealing from God, but it's also stealing from those that he loves and he cares for and wants to provide for. The question isn't how much of my stuff do I want to give to God, but how much of God's stuff does he want me to give? And it is an overwhelming abundant generosity for his people. Getting at this idea of God owning everything, I once met this missionary couple who loved Jesus so weird. And they were so kind and so generous. And one of the things that they did was, as a practice as a family was so cheesy, but it was so good. <laughs> they would refer to everything in their house as God. They would put it before almost everything. So you can imagine sitting at the dinner table. Hey, can you pass me God's salt, please? <laughs> uh, hey, I'm going to go take God's car for an oil change. Um, can, some, can somebody please answer God's phone? It's ringing back there. And while it was cheesy, it really did get to the point that everything does belong to God. And when you realize that God owns everything, then giving those things away and being generous is actually not that hard. It's not that hard to be generous with other people's uh, possessions. And then, uh, didn't, didn't mean to make that re reference there. Uh, did not mean to make that reference. Glad you all remember the 90s. Um, one, one, one story that illustrates this is probably one of the craziest moments that have happened in this church and the most angry that I've seen Ryan Arneson, the most embarrassed I've seen Jason Rabin. Jason, being the good steward that he is, when we first bought this building, he was going around, uh, it was a couple, like a year or two after we bought the building, and he thought, I'm going to go into the room, 
and see if there's anything in the various rooms of this church that we could donate and that we could give away. And he got into this room, and he saw that there were some, like, old furniture and wooden tables and these sorts of things. He said, well, I'm going to just take these to Goodwill. So he drops them off at Goodwill and gives them away, probably feeling pretty good about himself that he was uh, being generous. A few months later, Ryan puts an email out to everybody on the team. Has anyone seen my family's heirloom furniture? <laughs> yeah. And apparently Ryan had decided to store in one of the rooms this valuable, handcrafted, wooden furniture that was probably worth thousands of dollars and had incredible amounts of, of meaning to it. It was Grandma's kitchen table, and Jason just freely distributed it uh, to everyone else. Eventually, Ryan went around and he like went to all the Goodwills and bought his stuff back, and it ended up okay. But you see the ease with which Jason was able to give because it was not his stuff. It belonged to Ryan. Well, the difference in this case is our God actually does own a lot of valuable stuff that he freely does want you to actually give to others. And this brings us uh, to our final point that um, our generosity is a conduit of God's mission. Now, when I say mission, a lot of things come to mind, but the reality is, is that everybody is on a mission. Everyone is. There's some purpose that is driving us, and the question is, what mission are we on? If we are on a mission for comfort, then we're, we're going to spend a lot of our money, our time, our resources to provide comfort for ourselves. If we're looking for thrilling experiences, we're going to put our resources into uh, tickets and, and mileage to places that are Instagrammable things. If we are looking for security, we're going to, you know, we're going to do, get like the ring doorbell and like, you know, video over every inch of the house, right? Everyone's on a mission for something. The question is, what mission are we on? And one of the ways you can tell what your what mission you're on is, is by looking at your bank statement, looking at how you use resources. If you were to look at our bank statement, you'd get kind of conflicting ideas uh, because both my wife and I contribute to the spending. You will get the idea that my wife is on a mission to care for every person in the world. And you would get the impression that I am on a mission to eat every taco in the world. Uh, but the reality is, is as you pay attention uh, to where the money is going, it reveals what mission you are on. And what we see in this passage is that God is recovering a missional people of generosity. He's recovering his people back to their ways of blessing, of serving, of participating in his mission of, of blessing a broken world. In verse 10 through 12, we read, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that there will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and the vine in your field shall not bear, says the Lord. Then all the nations will call you blessed, and you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God is challenging his people to start giving again, and as they restore the tithe, he's promising to restore the land. 
what this passage says is, is interesting because it's actually forbidden in Deuteronomy that people test God, but he's making an exception in this particular case. And he's saying, test me. See how generous I'm going to be. See how thoroughly I restore that which is broken in your land. And it, it describes it in this really rich, beautiful language. He's describing his protection and his provision. We see his provision with this phrase that he's going to open the windows of heaven and pour out blessing. This has the idea that God is throwing open the floodgates of heaven and going to pour down rain on their dry soil. And then up from that soil will emerge the agricultural flourishing that will provide life for the community. But he's also talking about his protection. I love this phrase that, he, that he's going to rebuke the devourer. And most scholars think that that devourer they're referring to is a locust or some sort of pest that is actually eating the agricultural produce. And God is going to rebuke the pest. In other words, what you're getting from God in this situation is divine pest control. He's taken those things out so that the land will flourish. And as the land flourishes, the surrounding nations will see that this land is delightful, that God has blessed them, and they will see the generosity of God. Now, when we read this, if we read it through our modern uh, eyes, especially with the twisted theology of some of the TV preachers, you might think that this is a prosperity gospel thing that says if you give some money, God's going to make you rich and he's going to bless you and all those things. But really what's happening in this passage is that God is recovering a missional community of generosity. The key verse in this passage is the last one, verse 12, which says, then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight. This passage is an echo of Genesis 12. It's using the direct language from Genesis 12, and it would have been picked up on by the readers of Malachi. And in Genesis 12, God talks about, or it talks about how God is choosing Abraham, is turning him into a nation that he is going to bless so that Abraham and his family, ultimately God's people, would be a blessing to the nations, would be God's channel, his conduit of providing for and blessing the nations. God is on a mission to step into this broken world and mend that which is broken. But the way he chooses to do that is through the hands of his people. And he is calling them back to faithfulness. And as they step into faithfulness, they will become that community that is a blessing to the nations again. In other words, God said, I will be generous to my people so that my people could be this generous people to the whole world. And so what are the implications for us? It means that if we want to cultivate a greater sense of generosity and participate in that mission, it's to reorient ourselves and know the mission that we are a part of, to be a conduit, a channel of God's provision for others, like so many of you have in the $600,000 that's going out and serving the community. He's meeting needs. God is mending the, what that, that is broken. He is meeting needs. But he doesn't do it by magic. 
He doesn't do it by snapping his fingers. He does it through the hands of his people who are participants in his mission. He provides home for children in the foster care system, not by making houses appear out of thin air, but through the hospitality of those in this congregation whom he has blessed with an extra room and who have said, I will take a child into my home. He feeds the hungry, not by making bread fall from the sky, but through the sourdough recipes of the very people in this congregation. He cares for the lonely, not by just making their loneliness disappear, but by sending them a community as redemption communities, the communities that you're a part of, welcome uh, people into their homes and to their living rooms. Really, this passage, it has this image of the robber. The robber who comes in, is quiet, is, is sneaky, and finds a way to steal and take what is not but I think what we have going on in this congregation is actually something quite different. It would be the reverse of a robber. I've been trying to think of a word of it. The only thing that comes to mind is we've got a community of vigilante givers around here. You would be the type of people that would sneak into somebody's house in order to put things in their fridge and then sneak out. There's an overwhelming degree of generosity here. And at this week, I've taken the time to thank many of those people and to just ask them what shaped them. And as they have described the very things that shaped them, some of the themes that have come up over and over again is that they realize that God has a good resume of provision. They have a reverence and a respect for the fact that God owns everything and that they are participating in and conduits of God's incredible mission to restore all that is broken. So as we land, as we end, as we come to the table, we are not ultimately ending on our generosity. Because all human generosity, all of our generosity, is ultimately a response to God's generosity. And one of the beautiful images of this passage is the image of God opening up the heavens and pouring out blessings. In the passage, it refers to rain, but for those of us who've encountered Christ, we see that his generosity is even more abundant than the rain that hits the soil. But that God opens the windows of heaven and pours out his son on barren hearts, not just barren lands. We have something greater. For us, God has opened the windows of heaven and poured out the living water that seeps into every area of life and gives meaning and, and connects us to God and through which we thrive. We realize that every breath that we breathe is a breath given to us by God, but not only has he given us breath, but he has breathed into our, our lives the Holy Spirit. Not only does he give us the heartbeat, but he gives us new hearts. Greater than any human donation is the God who donated true humanity in Christ to a fallen humanity. And we receive him. We come to the table. We take communion. And as you come to the table, come with the mindset of remembering all that Christ has done and all that he has provided for you. What we're going to do now is, as the band comes up and begins to play, 
you can feel free to take the next three songs uh, and take communion. Go at your own pace and let this be a moment of deeply reflecting on all that God has provided and the ultimate thing that God has provided, the body and blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that every second you've given us, every breath you've given us, is ultimately a generous gift from you. We're grateful for your great gift in sending Jesus, our rescuer and our redeemer. And we pray that you would shape us into a generous people by encountering you as the God of generosity. That you would help us to be reminded of your faithfulness to us. And God, as we see and encounter you, uh, we just pray that this would be a time of worshipful response. Thank you, Jesus.